You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's show, Temporary Insanity, in which minds are lost, madness wins, and a dark room steals one man's sanity. As a child, he was loved. Openly, lavishly, and oftentimes, insanely. Until the age of 17, the act of simply making his own bed in the morning caused his mother to swoon. A genius, she said. A saint. His aunt, fingers brittle with arthritis, played with him endless games of go fish, and his grandparents, diabetic, palsied, and in continuous pain, would drop everything to watch him lip-sync the Bee Gees' Tragedy, a song they could have only taken to be about the pogroms. He was doing the backstroke in a sea of love, and he couldn't imagine living any other way. This feeling of unearned love, love for merely existing, would change when at the age of 17, he met Liat. He first laid eyes on her at a loft party, where she sat in a corner all by herself, dressed in black and nursing a small bottle of peach schnapps. She looked like one of those sad little Edward Gorey girls, all grown up and sexy. He sat down beside her, and feeling bold in a way that he only felt once or twice a year, and usually three or four sips into a bottle of liquor stolen from his parents' liquor cabinet, he laid out the contents of his wallet across her thighs. He wanted her to know everything about him, all at once. The video stores he belonged to, the coupons he clipped, how he carried the ace of spades because he believed it made him seem like an outlaw. He wanted Liat to know him as well as his family did. In that way, he figured, she'd love him like they did. Because why? he asked from the depths of his ignorance. Wouldn't she? Pretty soon they started dating, and pretty soon he found himself lapsing into this thing where he'd treat her in ways that his family treated him. It was the only way he knew how to love. He'd call her Pussycat and show concern for her diet, desperately inquiring as to whether she was eating enough fruit. He had even come close to grandfatherly tears when she told him about her parents' divorce at the age of eight. But it was different than mere familial love, too. For even through his tears, he was reaching for her hips, her legs, always trying to get lucky. For him, everything Liat did was erotically charged. Not just the things like cutting off a pair of her black tights at the thigh to make them into old-fashioned stockings, but even how she used vinegar on her french fries, something the boy considered sophisticated. It made him feel like a catsup-eating hick. He believed Liat to be better than him in most all ways, and was tormented by the idea that once she discovered this truth, she would leave him. Unlike the unconditional love of his family, this felt like a love that could run out on him if he wasn't careful. When he was alone, he'd find himself telling her stories in his head, practicing material, writing down his best jokes to use when he'd see her next. For the boy, keeping Liat loving him was a full-time job. 
And so when they went to the movies, he'd stare at her more than the screen, monitoring her every facial tick to make sure she was enjoying herself. And if she looked at him the wrong way, he'd feel like a fading hologram, like he hardly existed. All she had to do was refuse to be on his team while playing Trivial Pursuit with friends or not want to hold his hand in public because, quote unquote, that stuff was for kindergartners and his stomach would ache for hours. He wasn't sure why loving someone hurt so much, drove a person so mad, but he reassured himself that for love to be real, it had to hurt, had to be terrifying. Love was crazy, mercurial, a soil upon which nothing could be built, a soil destined for sinkholes. But oh, what glorious sinkholes. The boy's hunger for Liat, his desire to be as close to her as he could get, was such that one time, while following behind her on the highway, she driving her mother's Honda and him his father's station wagon, he became so afraid of any cars getting between them that he pressed down on the gas pedal, tailgating her to the point of almost causing an accident. Because in his mind, as always, she was trying to lose him, and it only made him want her more. He wanted to be the kind of boyfriend who let his girlfriend do the doting. He would lapse into a poor imitation of her mother's boyfriend, Frank, a large, stoic Greek man who chain-smoked jetans on their living room couch. Frank was attended to by Liat's mother, who seemed on a continual runner's high, taxiing endless plates of hummus and sadiki sauce from the kitchen to the couch, where Frank accepted each offering with a grim, thousand-mile stare. But whenever the boy tried to be silent and broodingly macho, Liat would just forget he was there, and then, remembering examine his expression, and ask if he'd been crying. No matter how hard he forced himself, and he forced himself with clenched-fisted determination, he could never come off as unforced, laid back. Whenever he tried to be free and easy, say, play-fighting with her, a lamp would end up getting broken, at which point, in a shrill voice, he'd beg her to stand atop the coffee table lest she cut a toe before he'd a chance to vacuum. Despite the mounting lunacy, he persisted in trying to seem chill, even attempting to tolerate the new friends she made in her college program, going along with them to cafes and talking about French New Wave cinema, craftwork, and other continental matters he could not care less about, but it just wouldn't stick. Calling her up one night, he heard a male voice, a boy he'd later learn was named Spartacus, hurrying her out the door to some party by saying, come on, let's bust a move. The boy bit his tongue, but in the days and weeks that followed, he constantly quoted the line back to her, especially on her answering machine when she wasn't home. Are you too busy busting a move to talk, he'd ask. I'd like to bust a move right in that guy's face. Seeing her on campus, in public, made him tremble with vulnerability, made him feel half-naked in a wet bathing suit, a drawer full of his boyhood underwear balanced on his head. One night, while out with friends at a local pub, he sat watching her play drinking games at an adjacent table, 
with some boys he'd just met there that evening. At first, he tried to be stoic, like Frank, or a grandfather. He tried to be someone, anyone, other than who he was. Good for her that she's enjoying herself, he tried to think. He tried to feel above it all, told himself he was definitely above it all. But then, with suddenness, he was most certainly below it all. Then he was angry at himself for feeling below it all. Then angry at her for making him feel below it all. Then angry at himself for feeling angry at her. Then angry at himself for not even knowing who he was angry with. And then he left the pub entirely, in a huff. A sweaty, impotent huff. Back home he felt alone and lost. And that was a feeling he knew he felt, with terrifying certainty. And feeling lost was the worst feeling of all. By the end of their freshman year, the boy's crazy jealousy finally became too much for her to bear, and Liat left him. For months afterwards, he lay awake at night, imagining what her next boyfriend would be like. In the boy's envisioning, he was a man who busted moves, not lamps. As the boy grew older, he saw his hungers grow more mundane. He hungered for sandwiches more than he did for people. He just wanted plain things like to be happy and for other people to be happy too. He just didn't have the energy to fall terrifyingly, stupidly, and insanely in love, not like he did when he was young. Sometimes he missed the feeling, missed that time in his life when he could spend whole days doing nothing but plotting, replaying, abandoning himself to his own lushly masochistic imaginings. It was nostalgia mostly, like missing getting drunk enough to yell in the street, or really anything he could no longer have. He did not want the craziness back, of course, but sometimes he found himself wishing there was a Viagra for the stuff, a chance to have the craziness back for a little while, to be able to look at someone the way he once looked at Liat, like his eyes, had teeth. My name's Adam Bloom, I'm a stand-up comedian, and about five years ago, the BBC approached me take part in an experiment to spend 48 hours in solitary confinement in pitch black conditions. And and why were they doing this exactly? Well, what it was, was a guy in the 60s did it to himself as an experiment just to see partly how prisoners who were being interrogated reacted because people can confess to a crime having been put in the dark for six months and the BBC, they were going to make a documentary about the effects sensory deprivation could have on people. And I took part in it. And um, th this hadn't been done since the 60s because psychologists and experts had deemed it dangerous. Go going into it, what did you think the experience of total sensory deprivation would be like? I thought it would be sitting in the dark for two days. I thought, what, what's the big deal? Because I use my imagination in my work, I thought this is going to be easy. I thought, well, I can sit there and think of material. I can be creative. I invent card tricks as well. Magic's a hobby. 
I can invent card tricks in my mind that I can then do when I get back to a pack of cards in the normal world. So I had all these plans about what, how I was going to get through it, but what I didn't realize was how grueling it was going to be. Five minutes before I went into the cell, I just remember thinking to myself, I can do this and it will be a bit of fun. Then went into the thing, they said goodbye, shut the door, and at first it was quite fun. It was that kind of, oh, new experience. Sitting down, okay, and I talked to myself, and I knew there was a camera crew watching me, so the, the show off in me was playing to the camera crew that I knew were there, and the psychologist is watching me 24 hours a day, they're doing shifts. And although I had no one to talk back to me, I at least had the confidence that someone was listening, and that kept my sanity going for a little bit. The first problem I experienced was when I fell asleep and I woke up, but I had no idea what time it was. Because, you know, if you have a nap in the dark without a watch, it could be two minutes, it could be 10 hours. That was the creepiest thing of the whole thing, was the fact that when I shut my eyes and opened them again, it could be two minutes, it could be five hours. So yeah, the, within three or four hours of being in there, I'd lost track of what day it was. I just paced up and down, and I think I sung every single song I know out loud. I was trying to make myself laugh. I was trying to entertain myself. And um, I started to drum, because I worked out that hitting my hands on something created a sound and a feeling. So I was just trying to keep my brain going, you know? And um, I worked out a game that I could count the amount of footsteps it was, normal walking pace, from one end to the other. And I worked out if I did exactly the right amount with my hands in front of me, I could work out exactly how many paces it was till my hand hit the wall. Then I worked out that if I took my hands away and trusted the amount of pacing I was doing, I would walk to the step in front of the wall and stop just before my nose hit the wall and therefore wouldn't hurt myself. So I was starting to, to learn the size of the room around me in the dark, kind of creating sight without seeing it. What were some other things that you did uh, to occupy yourself? Um, I cried. I don't think I did that to occupy myself, but I, had, I burst into tears. Are you, um, are you a crier by nature? No, I'm not a crier by nature. I think what, what this proved was the emotional, um, not damage, but the uh, effect it was having on my emotions was quite strong because, you know, you think how many things you read in a day, signs, adverts, like even if you're lonely or bored, Everywhere you're looking, there's information, but, but I'm in a pitch black room, you know? There was absolutely nothing, everything shut down. And I think that just got me instantly depressed. And then the next thing that happened after crying was hallucinating. I saw a vivid pile of oyster shells on the prison floor. I knew they weren't there because I knew I was in an empty cell I'd seen be closed. But I still had to check, just in case when I turned my back, someone had snuck in and put them there. So I put my hand through them and they weren't there. Listen to this for a paranoid thought. I started trying to remember the email address from the producer confirming it with me to check that it ended with bbc.co.uk because I started to wonder if I'd been kidnapped and it was actually a horrible, horrible trick being played on me. Locked in a room and left to die by some 
nutcases who've just got this internet channel where you watch someone die in an infrared camera, watch them rot. That was a, a genuine thought. I wondered if I was, it was all a hoax. That's quite a horrible thought. I remember plotting an escape. I worked out that if I tied some sheets to the tray where the food was, when they came to collect the tray, with a bit of light, when they'd walk in the room, they'd step on the tray, and then I'd pull the sheet, and they'd come flying. You know, it was like a kind of cartoon escape I was inventing. Of course, it wasn't going to work. So how much time had actually passed when you started to lose your mind like that? I don't know the exact time, but I think it was about a day and a bit. It was, it was certainly nearer the middle. It was that is, quickly? Yeah, that quick. Wow. Which is quite scary if you think people were in solitary confinement for six months. I mean, I, my brain wasn't working after two days. It was, it was horrible. I thought, am I losing my mind? Have I been here for six hours? It feels like 48 hours. I thought, this is, there's no way I'm getting through this. But it occurred to me a day in that I must have been there for a day because I know how long my stubble is after a day. I went in clean-shaven, and the only thing I had to work out time was the stubble on my face. So that was my little bit of sanity. Towards the end, I realized my stubble was at least a day and a half's growth. So that's where it started to get a little bit of hope. And what happened when the experiment finally came to an end? Oh, my God, the, uh, the door opened, and it was um, just this magical thing of light, seeing light. And there was a psychologist there who, I hugged him. I was so pleased to see him. I was so pleased to see him. He asked me to walk down the corridor, and I walked down the corridor. I got to the end of the corridor, and it was the outside world. And I saw just the most beautiful thing. Well, this was an old RAF base. You know, it was, it was all quite grey and dull, but suddenly now, having been in the dark for 48 hours, this grey, dull place, I saw the grass and I saw the little buttercups and I saw the blue sky, and suddenly it was this kind of techno colour, this lovely <laughs> bright greens, and it was wonderful. Suddenly your senses went, you know, if you do nothing for a day and a half, imagine how nice it is to wash your hands suddenly. I looked at the swirling walls, you know, in a tap creates that swirl, that kind of random that spins around. That's a little helter-skelter, a magical helter-skelter that hits the sink and then disappears forever. It's like this magical tube, and you put your hand under it and it changes temperature. It gets warmer as your hand's under it, as it heats up. And soap's got a texture to it, and it's shiny, and, and you squeeze, press the button, and the spring reacts, and it's the feeling of all that going on. There's loads going on. And then you rub your hands against a towel, and it's all soft and fluffy, and then you feel your hands get drier. That's all going on. But of course, it didn't take long for the reality to set in and me just take things for granted again. It's, it's like most things, you know, like when you're ill. How often when you're ill do you go, oh, I'm gonna appreciate being better again. I'm gonna appreciate being better again. And you do for the first two days and then you just get complacent. That's a, an unfortunate side of human nature, I think. Did, did the experiment shake your trust in, in your own mind? It, it amazed me how, how fragile your functioning brain is. You stick me in the dark for two days and I hallucinate vividly. You know, we're all on the brink of, of madness, aren't we?
When I trim my nails, I have to flush the clippings down the toilet to prevent anyone from practicing voodoo against me. Whenever I'm in a new building, I silently count the number of steps to the exit. I spell out the words inside my shoe with my big toe. So weird, I know. I have to shift from foot to foot when standing in one place too long, because otherwise I keep thinking the bones in my feet will burst through the skin. When I leave a social gathering of any size, I must ensure that I say my most genuine goodbye to every single person I've had even the slightest of interactions with. This usually means I spend the majority of my time there saying goodbye to people and often miss the last train home. If I'm not absolutely sure that my front door is locked, I'm a wreck all day. I've taken to doing something memorable as I lock the door, like biting my tongue or retying my shoes. I put my left shoe on before my right shoe. When I push myself out of my comfort zone and try putting the right one on first, I have to take them both off and start over. I check to make sure there are no spiders in the toilet before I sit down. I count the syllables in words when people are talking to me. I count them by tapping my fingers on my thumb. I like even numbers, so sometimes I add a word or two to round it off. When I'm home alone and have turned off all the lights on the first floor, I walk backwards up the stairs, making sure nothing is following me. I feel completely naked unless I'm wearing my toe ring and my pork pie hat. Johnny, surprise, it's me. Gregor, what, 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 what Emergency you... mental health intervention because of the insight that I had about a person who would put on a pork pie hat. Gregor, I look good in this hat. People, I'm getting a lot of compliments. Confidentially, I'm getting some looks from women also, you know. I'm sure you're getting looks from women and dogs and children. They're all looking at you like, who's this freak show and why does he look like he's on his way to a zoot suit riot? I think you've gone crazy and no. I'm going to have you committed to a mental institution. <laughs> Just because of a choice of, 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 of hat. You can't discern because your brains are getting melted from the glue in your hat band. Listen, there's no shame in mental illness. You just need treatment. I don't think deciding to wear a pork pie hat is a symptom of mental illness. Look it up. DSM-5. Hat pie dysmorphia. It was just declassified as a disease. There is no such disease. For your information, I have all of the diagnostic and statistic reference manuals on my iPad, and I read them daily. Why would you read them daily? I gotta look out for my clients. They're signs, they're warning signs. I'm not gonna sit idly by and let you kill yourself. You've not taken care of your personal appearance anymore. All I did, all I did was buy a, I bought a pork pie hat, so what? You know what I realized about you? What? You're losing your mind, as well as your hair, which is probably why you bought that hat. We gotta get you into therapy. Stat, two bags of therapy hooked up to an IV pole and plugged right into your brain with two long sharp needles. Well, friend. I will start looking around for a therapist. You don't need to look around anymore, cause guess what? What? Your therapist's here. Lay down. Okay, first of all, you are not my therapist. Interesting. How long have you thought that I'm not your therapist? Gregor, you are not my therapist. Interesting. What are you, what are you writing down? I'm just keeping notes so I can make sense of the session later. You don't get a friend to be your therapist. We're not friends. I'm your therapist. That's why I'm charging you for the 50-minute hour. What do you mean you're charging Don't concern me. yourself. I'm just going to tag it onto my retainer at the end of the month. Don't worry. You're not even going to feel it. So anyway, you were saying, you have some feelings? Okay, listen, I'm under deadline. I need to finish writing the monologue for my radio show, okay? If you'll just... Tell me more about this radio show you imagine you have. Why you... did you just put that in quotations? Tell me more about your feelings about this radio show. You believe your thoughts and feelings are being broadcast on a radio in your tooth, you said? 
Gregor, I'm really don't starting e to get very frustrated. Don't edit yourself. Tell I'm me not editing myself. Get out of my studio. Tell more about the frustration. This this anger is very healthy. It's like poison after a bee sting. We're getting the poison. I don't out. like. We're okay. not going to waste 29 years in therapy here, Woody Allen. We're going to get you fixed. I'm going to do a little therapy exercise that's a little controversial right here, but I want you to stay with me. Close your eyes. Count backwards from 10. 10. I don't have all day. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 10, 5, 9, 4. 8. Why am I counting no, you back? Just pick it up where I let off. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. 3, 2, 1. What are you doing? Ow, my head! I set your hat on fire. Johnny, I have to say, there's no prouder day in a therapist's life than to see his patient cured. Gregor, Look I at you, this, all I, charred I, and healthy I'm on again. Fire. You're on fire with mental health. It's spreading. My toe ring is smelting. On Wiretap today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich and Adam Bloom, whose comedy can be viewed at adam-bloom.com. For more on Adam's experience with sensory deprivation, check out the documentary Total Isolation from BBC Horizon. You also heard Neurotic Habits as confessed by our Facebook fans. Thanks for sharing them, and special thanks to everyone at CBC Montreal who read them. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bertwin-Tonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius XM. Subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone. Your therapist's here. Lay down. Unburden yourself of all your problems with every ring of your phone.